If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of Mark, and we're going to the 11th chapter. We're going to end up uh, reading the end of 11th, Mark chapter 11, and then we're going into chapter 12, beginning Mark 12. Good to see each and every one that's here with this this morning, and I love hearing the pages of the Bible turning. You know what? If we understand the sovereignty or the authority of God in our life, and we come under that authority and understand his sovereign rule in our life, in our world, it'll help you with whatever you're going through right now or whatever you're going to go through. It's an important point. This morning we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus Christ. A DEA officer stopped at a ranch in Texas and talked with an old rancher. He told the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegal grown drugs. The rancher said, okay, but don't go in that field over there, as he pointed out that direction. The DEA officer verbally exploded, saying, mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his rear pants pocket, he removed a badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. See the badge. This badge means I'm allowed to go wherever I wish, on any land. No questions asked or answers given. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? The rancher nodded politely and apologized and went about his chores. A short time later, the old rancher heard loud screams and looked up and saw the DA officer running for his life, being chased by the rancher's big bull. With every step, the bull was gaining ground on the officer, and it seemed like that he'd sure enough get gored before he reached safety. The officer was, very cle- was clearly terrified. The rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, your badge, show him your badge. <laughs> We're ending into... <clears throat> In the book of Mark, in a section we call Holy Week. And Jesus has a run-in with the high priests. As we go into Mark 12, he talks about the source of authority. It's Tuesday morning. The Sunday before Jesus, before Jesus rode the donkey up to Jerusalem, with thousands of people singing praises and laying down palm branches for Jesus. Time of celebration. The arrival of King Jesus. The deliverer from the Roman government. He had come to free Israel. So they thought. And from the heart of Jesus, he is weeping for they didn't understand that the very temple he had entered in would be destroyed in a few years that he himself was making a presentation for his death as the Lamb of God. At the end of the week, on the day of atonement, they would hang Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice that delivers us from eternal death. The same voices that cried Hosanna, they gave him praise, would yell crucify. Jesus being the accepted sacrifice to God that frees us from the guilt and shame of sin. Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem, triumph entry. 
the following Sunday, he's resurrected from the dead and triumphantly walks into heaven itself as the Lamb of God being offered on the sacrifice for our sins. It is Tuesday morning. The day after when Jesus had entered the temple and he threw out the merchants and crooked money changers, he cleaned out the house of God and said, this is his house. And he said, it would be a house of prayer. It's Tuesday morning. Jesus walks through the eastern gate of Jerusalem right into the temple yard. The high priest is there. And I want you to think about this. Put yourself in the place of the high priest into their shoes. Think about their reception of Jesus. If we were the high priest at this time, we would be fuming for the anger for Jesus cleaning out the temple the day before. When Jesus walked in, I would imagine that any noise, any talking would immediately have ceased. And all eyes gazed upon Jesus. The high priest must have been thinking, as we would be if we were the high priest, thinking, what is he going to do next? Yesterday, he cleaned out the temple, and no doubt there must have been feeling of guilt and shame from the high priest for what they had allowed to go on in the temple in the name of God. And maybe there was jealousy because of the great reception by the popular crowd of, of the thousand crying out to Jesus as the deliverer. Maybe there was this feeling of insecure of their positions, losing the favor of the people, the rule of the people, the authority of the people. There they stood. As we read in Matthew, Mark chapter 11, excuse me, as Jesus comes to the temple in, the, in verse 27, Mark 11, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came and they said unto him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? I understand this, folks. If we were the high priests, we were standing in a building such as this or a uh, an area such as this called the temple of God. There were three sections. There was an outer, an inner, and then the, the holy most part of the temple. It was a place where they would gather to meet God, and God would meet man. The sacrifice would be given. The day of atonement was about to be upon them. They were looking forward to that time. The Shekinah glory would be in the temple as they're receiving that sacrifice. All of those things were in place. And so here's Jesus, and the high priest, here is this, the temple of God. God is standing in the temple of God, and the high priests are saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, that's a foolish question, isn't it? Here the high priests are asking God, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? 
It is amazing. We see the grace of God withheld in his wrath. We see the grace of God uh, keeping his anger under control for the right time to be released. We see how the, the grace of God and his love and compassion that he just didn't just explode at that moment. I know you and I would have. At least I would have. And here's what Jesus does in his kindness and gracious God does this. He said, I'll ask you one question and answer me and I'll tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, is it from heaven or from men? And answer me. And they reasoned among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you not believe him? But if he will say from, from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And so they answered to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he asked, they asked him a question. He said, well, I'll ask you a question. You ask this question, I'll answer your question. And of course, they couldn't answer. And they didn't answer. But Jesus, Jesus didn't leave it there. Understand, again, they're in the temple of God. They're standing there. This is the place where they were to worship God. This is the place where God designed the temple. He created, they built it. He gave instructions for it. They're standing in this very spot. And Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Jesus used parables quite often. And the rabbis, they would use parables as well to, to bring out a point. And he, and he gives, goes into chapter 12 and verse 1. It's a continuous story. There's no breaks between the chapters. Those are man-made. It says, then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. So far, so good. Great plan. Here we have a very good uh, builder, and he is uh, building this vineyard. And, and, he, and he does it right. And it doesn't cut any corners. He builds a hedge around it, protect it from the enemy, the, the animals, those that would come in and destroy and uh, take care of the, or would eat the, uh, the vines. And, and then he digs a, a, a place for the wine vat, and he builds a tower in the middle of it as a place of storage or protection for watch out for enemies or, or, uh, or, or animals that would come in and destroy the, the crops. And, and then he does one other thing. He leases it to the wine dressers. And then he goes to a far country. He puts it in charge. He's given everything for them to be able to operate what his expectations were. They were responsible for the, the vines and to build this crop. <clears throat> I want you to go to the book of Isaiah chapter 5. Because remember, as the high priests are listening here, and they are well adversed in the Old Testament. And immediately when Jesus is speaking the story, it automatically links to them to a story in the Old Testament. And we must go here because it, it is addressing as the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel, and Jesus brings it forward to this point. And they're very familiar with this. So let's read seven verses. He said, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard, 
on a very fruitful hill, and he dug it up and cleared it out of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst, and he also made a wine press in it. And so he expected to bring forth good groups, good groups, forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now what happens of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard? How else could I, could I make it better so produce the right kind of fruit? There's nothing more he could have done. That I, why then, when, when I expected it to bring forth good frape, grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and I shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste and it shall be not pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns and I also command the clouds and, they, and they, that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plants. He looked for justice and behold oppression for righteous, but behold a cry for help. Very clear that when Isaiah was speaking, he was talking about the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus comes along and he speaks and he says, I want to tell you a story. I said, and he talks about this vine, uh, a vineyard and the, and the vine dressers. And then he goes to this far country. And the graciousness of God, God has sinned in, in this point here is, is that he has, he's done everything to provide for success, to bring out fruit. There's not, there's not anything that he has withheld, no steps that he has, has uh, uh, lacking for them to have fruit, to have good fruit. And so he's done everything for the vine dressers. My grandfather, Grandpa Theron, um, the earliest remembrance of Grandpa Theron was in Nest City, Kansas. How many have been to Nest City, Kansas? <laughs> and many times. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So then you know that Nest is known for the capital pheasants of of the world because you've been there so many times. <laughs> well, outside of Nest City, Kansas, my grandfather, uh, Theron, had a farm. And on this farm, it was the f my f earliest remembrance of Grandpa Theron. And um, I remember riding my first time on this green John Deere tractor and uh, going to the crops and they grew corn, walking along the irrigation ditch and taking a pipe wrench and open up the valves and, and, the, and the barn and everything. And I thought that was so cool. And from that moment, I wanted to be a farmer. Later on in my life, I found out that my grandfather was a sharecropper. He didn't own the farm. There was somebody else that had owned the farm. And of course he would, um, raise the crops, do all the work and everything, and the owner would supply, you know, the means to do that. And uh, when the harvest came, he would split that, however it was, I think it was 50-50, if I remember right, with the owner, and then he would keep half of it. And that's the way they, they survived. They lived off of that as a sharecropper. 
So we have this story here that, these, that the owner is leaving this under the responsibility for these individuals, the high, uh, not the high priest, but the, the um, vine dressers. And of course, you see the analogy of the high priest. So let's go on to verse number two. Now at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Well, that's uh, normal. You know, uh, it wouldn't it be um, expected? That's okay. Just like my grandfather, you know, when the harvest came, they divided up. Very natural, yeah, you're the owner. You get this much, we already got this arrangement. And so everything's cool. But notice, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyards from the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. How foolish. And remember, Jesus is speaking. And if we were the high priest, maybe by that now, we would think our toes were getting stepped on. That they, they were, you know, feeling kind of, he's talking about us. He's, he's given this to us. Let's go on in verse 4. And again, he sent them another servant... And at the time, they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another. And him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Now, I don't know about you, but if you think about this, this isn't very wise of the owner. Taking one servant after another, and he would get this response back, get the same response back from the vine dressers for the ones who was caring for the crops, for the vines. The owner was very gracious and patient. He sent messenger after messenger, even though they were all abused and mistreated, because the owner of the vineyard was not present at the time. The vine dressers doubted and mocked his authority. They soon found out that even though they couldn't see the owner, his authority was still real. Martin Luther cried out one time. He said, "If I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick out the I would kick the wretched thing to pieces." <laughs> we would. But in the graciousness of God, in the story, the owner keeps sinning. But he doesn't stop there. Let's read verse 6. And therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to the last, saying, they will respect my son. Surely they're going to, my own flesh and blood, my son, they're, they're going to receive him. Remember the high priest, he's there and he's in the temple of God. And they're asking, who, who gave you the authority to do this? Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to the last saying, this will, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. You notice they didn't have this warm, fuzzy feeling towards the sun. But in their foolishness, they said, if we kill him, we can inherit this and it'll be ours. Because the owner won't have a son to receive it. 
You know, there's a couple things that this part of this story tells us. First of all, it tells us that Jesus clearly knew that he was the son of God. And he clearly knew that he was going to be the one that's going to be sacrificed and be killed. There, there are no exceptions to this. There's no, no that, well, I don't know if Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what was going on. He was going to the cross. He said that from the, from the get-go. God said that, that when Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, he came to, to be the one who's going to die for the sin of mankind. So Jesus knew this. The son was the final messenger. There would be no other after him. You know, it, it, and the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, there is, a, there is a final answer. There is a final line. God's grace doesn't keep on going on, and, 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 if, and, and if it's not received, he doesn't keep on going. There is a point where God withholds his, his hand of conviction, of bringing, of wooing, of talking. There is a line. And it is a scary thing to fall in the hands of an angry God, that great message. There is a line that we cross. And these guys were crossing that line. Spurgeon said it, if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one can, else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ, be, if Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. I know that's a heavy point. But it's necessary to understand that there is a time where God says, enough is enough. Let's go on to read verse 9, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 9. Therefore, that, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dresses and give, vineyard, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. It's a crazy thing. They knew it was about them. And yet they turned away. If they could have, in their heart, they would immediately pounced on Jesus and take him out and stoned him. But the fear of the multitude of what they would, that would look like. Therefore, what would the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus takes a reference from Psalms 118. We won't turn there. Jesus, when he was speaking here upon the earth, he spoke uh, several times from the book of Psalms. I think it's about 19 different times. It was one of his favorite places to bring scripture in, into his life, and he would quote that. But he quotes this verse, and this, again, the stone which the builders reject became the chief cornerstone. 
And so we're thinking about the temple of God. And, the, and, and the, what he is, is, of course, it's a metaphor of what the temple of God is and what this means to the, uh, to, uh, the high priest, is that he was the cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the stone that lined up the building. It was the first stone that, that they would shoot off this wall and they would shoot off that wall and they would shoot up, you know, they would use this as a, as a means to build the building, to go forth from the building. There's also called a capstone, and it was the capstone that completes the building. It held it together. Uh, sometimes it was the, the thing that, that, was, that uh, structurally was important because it, it fit and it caused the building to be strong because of the capstone, and it was the last stone put in place. So the cornerstone was important to start, and the capstone was important to complete. And Jesus is saying, he says, I am in, in this, what he's saying here, he said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the author of our salvation, the completion of our salvation. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone. Saying this to the rabbis. Interesting story when Solomon's temple was being built, and this is an old rabbi story, and we don't know how, if, if, if it's true or if it's just a story. The rabbis love to tell stories, to make up stories great stories to, to uh, bring out a point. But when Solomon's temple was being built, it was forbidden for the sound of hammers to be heard at the job site because it was a holy place of worship. You can't have worship with construction going on in the background. So it had to be quiet. What this meant for the construction was that each and every 20-ton stone had to, to have a shop drawing and was made several miles away in the quarry. Several miles away, each stone was carefully cut for its exact spot in the temple. From the very start, there was a plan for each stone. The very first stone to be delivered was the capstone, but this is the last stone needed in construction. So the builder said, what is this? This doesn't look like any of the first stones we need. Put it over there for now. Well, years went by and the grass grew over the capstone and everyone generally forgot about it. Finally, the construction was done and the builders had said, send us the capstone. And the word came back from the quarry, we already did. They were confused. Then someone remembered what they had done with the very first stone sent to them. It was taken from its lowly position among the overgrown weeds where it had been forgotten. And was honored in the very final ceremony to complete the temple. Thus the scripture says, the stone the builders reject had become the capstone. And Jesus is speaking to the high priest in the middle of the temple of God and they're questioning his authority. And he's telling him he is the authority. And they missed it. They put him aside. They rejected him. So I want to make you four, four applications before we go today in our lives. And I think these are very important things. So if you have your notes, I'd like for you to write them down. Number one, it's so important for us to understand we lease. We lease, we do not own. All belongs to God. The sovereignty of God is in play. You and I are here by the grace of God. The air we breathe belongs to God. The ground we walk upon belongs to God. The food we eat belongs to God. The stars that we enjoy at night belong to God. The high priest is standing in the temple and questioning the authority of God, questioning the designer, the builder of the temple, the owner of the temple, and the purpose of the temple. 
They have no place to question the authority of God. So I'd like to really bring it home to where we live. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, 20, he said, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. This is very convicting to me. It's very convicting to understand that always as a believer, I've accepted Jesus Christ. And I stand here, but I stand here with God standing in a me through the Holy Spirit. And he's telling me that he has bought me and all that I am, I belong all to God. There's nothing, there's nothing that I own. I'm just renting. I'm leasing from him. I'm responsible for what he's done. And he says he gave me the gifts and he gave, makes everything to produce food, fruit in my life. Good grapes, not wild grapes. He said he would give those to me. He gives those to me. You know, there's real freedom when we come to this place of letting go. I like what Joe said earlier today. And that we, we have that freedom when we understand the sovereignty of God. Because here's what happens. If God wants to take this body and cause it to be involved in a wreck or cause it to, to you know, grow hair <laughs> on top. If God wants to do that, that's his. Because I don't own me. I am his. And you are his if you're a believer in Christ Jesus. And there's a real freedom in us. Because when things happen to us, we can go back to God. Okay, God, you allowed this. Why did you allow this? Well, what's going on, God? How do you want to use this? There's real freedom in this. When things that happen to us in our life. God, I'm your vineyard. You grow what you want and how you want. I'm yours. Paul said in Romans 11, Oh God, oh how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible for us to understand his decision and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thought? Who can even, who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power. And he is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. So I'm going to come up and get right into your front door. As a believer in Christ Jesus, there's a test in the Bible. It tells us and shows us and proves us that we trust God as our owner. And it's a little thing, but it becomes a big thing. It's called tithe. You see, he gives us the ability to work. He gives us a job, and maybe we have prayed for that job, and God gives us and blesses us with that place of appointment, and we thank God for that. And then he comes on and said, and by the way, would you, so that we keep everything right between you and, and who's on, would you give the first uh, tenth of uh, what you make and give it to God? Does he have the right to ask that of us, to us and me? Absolutely. He has blessed us. 
He's given us the ability. If, if we wrestle that with that, we stand like the high priest there in the temple and say, who questioned, who gave you the authority to tell me what to, this is, we are in authority here. When we become a believer, we are bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No greater value commodity that you could you could not raise all the money to equal to what Christ has done for us and he gives that to us freely and he comes along and says I want to give you but the cool thing about this in this test is that he blesses the rest of your 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 crops he blesses it he doesn't withhold rain he pours rain fertilizer whatever needs he keeps the pestilence away so that you can see the blessings of God and trust him. Oh, with our gifts and our talents and who we are, we need to be like my friend Jerry who said one day, he said, you know, I stood before a businessman and I uncurled my fingers and I said, God, it's all yours. Everything I have is yours. Secondly, a correct balance of God's love and his holiness is wrong to emphasize God's love at the expense of his holiness. Jesus is not a pacifist. We can talk about God's love and we love God and God loves us and we understand, but understand this, but in the holiness of God, there is, there is love. God's love, not at the expense of his holiness and righteousness and avenging wrath. Proverbs chapter 21, 9 verse 1, he says, he who is often reproved, yet stiff in his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Hebrews 12 talks about guys of consuming fire. And, and the, the things that one day with what we have, with who we are as a church, with our gifts, one day we're going to stand before God as believers and we're going to give an account for it. And Paul says some of it's going to be burned up because it was nothing. But there is going to be stuff that we bring before God and, and we're going to be praise God for the gold and the silver, the good things of life that we followed in obedience to him called the Bema Seat, the rewards. Number three, where do we place Jesus Christ in our lives? I think this is so important. We, we can't place him aside. He has to be the cornerstone. He has to, we have to build our life around Jesus Christ, build around him who we're going, uh, what we're going to do with Jesus, the, the owner. He's the Alpha and Omega. And number four, and I love this, I like this. God's infinite love is being revealed. God's infinite love is being revealed. It's being revealed over and over again. And though there is a point where his goodness is going to cease when it's not received, but God's infinite love has been revealed over and over again through the prophet Moses that came to the nation of Israel. And then Moses fled the children of us, but there was some murmuring and there was some rejection. We had Jeremiah who came to the... And then we had Isaiah. We had, you know, Habakkuk, Malachi. Different prophets came, continued, that God sent them. And then he sent John the Baptist right before he sent Jesus Christ. And these were prophets to show the goodness of God that people could repent and turn to him. And John the Baptist came talking about that repentance. And Jesus came, and God said, well, surely, surely my only son, they would receive him. 
And I'm so glad that most of you in here today have received Jesus Christ. You have received the son. The owner has come and you have welcomed him. You have embraced him. But many of folks in the community and out, they still reject. But God is still sending and still time, there's time that he is sending and wanting for them to know his love and his grace, his forgiveness and mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we accept who you are and what you've done for us. And God, we're amazed at your kindness, how you have sent people along in our life and you've witnessed to us and, and maybe we rejected them, but you didn't stop, that you continue to cause us to be called to yourself. And then one day we received you. And Father, that is an amazing thing when we think not only you called us and you made us a vine dresser, a sharecropper. You put us in position as a joint heir with the owner. Oh, what amazing thing that God you have done for us. That we are going to have the same inheritance as your son, Jesus Christ. What glorious thing that you have done for us. What wonderful blessings beyond our words and imagination when we get to experience the fullness of our inheritance because of Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for that. And if there be someone here among us who does not know you, that today, right now, they would open up your, their heart to you. They would receive you as your Lord, as King of their life, as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen.